0: The Science Inside Podcast. This is the Science Inside.
1: Hello and welcome to the show. It's indeed the one hour of the week where we talk all things science. My name is Alna Schütz and as always I have a team behind the scenes, Budget Leper on production and Kutlano Sahame on tech with me. And it's so nice that you today are joining me, especially If you love all things sport, there is so much happening in the sporting world at the moment. Of course, football is one of the main things that comes to mind, but so is tennis and Wimbledon, if that's more of your thing. Today on The Science Inside, we look at sports and how nutrition can better help the human body to cope with Other things that are happening inside of it. So something like pregnancy, which um, is a condition that takes a toll on the human body in a way, Um, especially for someone who is a professional sports person. woman and their health and performance can actually be altered and affected by pregnancy this may not be a particularly new thought to you if you've been reading the news headlines specifically around seven time tennis champion Serena Williams who recently opened up about why she has to stop or has decided to stop breastfeeding her daughter after only six months because she could not seem to lose the excess weight and instead she was gaining weight which does happen with quite a few women the following was an insert in um, of a report by good day america where williams spoke about her emotional challenge of choosing between losing weight and training for wimbledon or staying out of the competition in favor of breastfeeding her daughter olympia
0: all all over pop culture you hear when you breastfeed you lose weight and you're so thin and it wasn't happening to me i was training and everything and everyone says oh you're so thin when you breastfeed i'm gonna be totally frank no matter how much i worked out no matter how much i did it didn't work for me i was vegan i didn't eat sugar totally eating completely healthy and I wasn't at the weight that I would have been had I not. I have been doing absolutely the right thing every day, with the exception of probably the main thing, which is breastfeeding. Literally, I lost like 10 pounds in a week. It was crazy, and I just kept dropping. What I've learned through the experience, every body is different.
1: So that was Serena Williams talking a little bit about her experience around being a sportswoman and how nutrition and other changes in the body can affect that. And we all know that. So often you hear advice like, oh, you should be eating this. Oh, you should be exercising like that. But these things don't happen in a vacuum. You might have a chronic illness. You might suffer of asthma or something else. And when you personally, even though you might not be Serena Williams, Look at your lifestyle, your nutrition, your, um, your exercise, it all links together. So that's what we will be looking at with an expert in our main story on the science inside today. Then, as you know, if you are a regular listener, we have, have something called unscience, which looks at some strange and interesting research. And today, if you're a left-handed person or have left-handed people in your life, There's some new research about how your brain works. That's very interesting. It turns out that the processing of emotions in your brain is not happening in the same place as for us right-handed folk. And that can have quite, quite serious um, consequences on things like mental health and the treatments that work for some people, but not for others. So we'll be digging a little bit deeper into that later in the show and then... At the end of it, we'll spend some time specifically looking um, at multivitamins. I don't know if you take any vitamins, you pop that vitamin C, you get that little bit of like a Baraka, vitamin B high when you're on exams. I am very guilty of this. But we find out, and it might surprise you, are these pills making you really as healthy as those adverts say? Or are you just making very expensive pee? We'll find out later in the show. It is all on the Science Inside. Before that, we'll get into the news, of course, on social media. Share uh, your stories with us. I would appreciate uh, hearing whether you're left-handed, whether that has affected your life in some way. Also, we have a Twitter poll up about vitamins. So if you want to just pop us a vote there, we'll see and tally them up together later just to see what people are saying about whether they believe in multivitamins and how real that that is to them. We're on Facebook and on Twitter as... At Vow FM. Just make sure you use that hashtag science inside. And if you can't listen right now or you want to listen again later, the podcast is up on uh, iTunes as always, as well as that website, which is nice and easy to remember. It's vets.journalism.coza forward slash science. Nice and easy, but let's get into the news after this.
2: This week's Science Headline.
1: So, as always, we get into some things that are happening in the world of science. Just grab some quick stories that are of interest for you before we settle into the rest of our show. And as always, I'm here with producer Bridget Le How are you doing?
3: I'm great. And how are you, Elna? I'm very good. Let's jump into the news. What do you have for us? Researchers have found that an ancient, an ancient skeleton has given them clues to southeast southeast asia's population and what their occupation was okay so, mm-hmm. and ancient dna testing from an 8000 year old uh, skeleton has put the controversial issue to bed saint john's college university of cambridge professor sk willislev led an international study where Gal from the Hobinham, person from the Gao Hau Gao archaeological site in Malaysia Peninsula, settled the dust over a topic which been which has been long quarrelled for over a century. So, DNA extracted from an eight thousand year old skeleton has solved and debunked a theory about the human occupation of Southeast Asians. Apparently, Southeast Asia is one of the most genetically diverse regions in the world and for many years scientists have never rested the theory of whether the origins of the population in that area were correct one theory states that the indigenous Hobinhian hunter gatherers who populated southeast asia for more than 44000 years adopted agricultural uh, practices independently without any help from early farmers from East Asia. Okay. And another theory says this is a twofold account saying that the migrating rice farmers from China replaced the indigenous Hobinian uh, hunter gatherers. Okay, so that's quite interesting, but how exactly did they find this out? Well, academics from around the world collaborated on this new research, which was published, and they found that neither theories were completely accurate. The researchers extracted DNA from the skeletal remains from Malaysia, Thailand, the Philippines, uh, the Philippines, Vietnam, Indonesia, Laos, and Japan. Mm-hmm. And in their study, they discovered that present-day Southeast Asian population's ancestry originates from at least four ancient populations, which had previously only been successful in sequencing 4,000-year-old samples from that region. And this proved to be a scientific first. They took samples which included DNA from the Hobinian hunter-gatherers and a jomon from japan revealing a long suspected genetic link between the two populations okay so that's really interesting that they found that genetic
1: link but how many skeletons did they look at exactly because if they only
3: looked at one obviously that wouldn't work Of course not. So they had 26 ancient human genome sequences, which were compared with modern day DNA samples from people living in Southeast Asia today. Another phenomenal aspect about the study, though, is that the research was conducted under tremendous heat and humidity, meaning that the The harsh and volatile environmental conditions for preservation, um, scientists were faced with many challenges uh, because of this. So a PhD student at the Center of Geogenetics in the Natural History Museum of Denmark. The university, in the university, the university of Copenhagen, Hugh McCall stated that sequencing 25 ancient human ju- genomes from Southeast Asia and one from the Japanese Jomon, they were able to show that neither previous interpretation fit the complexity of Southeast Asia's history. Okay, so that's very interesting, but why is it important
1: for, you know, Southeast Asians in particular, but also in general?
3: Yeah, otherwise this study would be of no use, right? Another researcher, Professor Marta Marizon La, who is the director of the Duckworth Laboratory at the University of Cambridge, said the study tackles two major mysteries about the origins of the diversity of Southeast Asian people. Mm-hmm. And the and the ancient relationships between the distant populations such as Jomon and Halbinian hunters, looking at people who were there before farming came into play. He added that they, were, they have learned quite a lot from studying the ancient genomes, highlighting that the genome from Khao Sha shines some light on the importance of amazing collections such as the Earth, which is one of the world's largest source of human remains. Hmm. Okay, and I'd be interested
1: to know if there's more, um, you know, more we can learn from a general evolutionary aspect here, Um, not just in uh, in terms of this particular population, but how hunters and gatherers and agriculture evolved in the various areas on Earth. Sure. Very interesting. Um, my story, just to take a little bit of a jump, comes from Associate Professor Mohammed Fad and Professor Stephen Robinson from RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia, through Science Daily. And Bridget, I don't know, do you remember that Volkswagen ad where a dad is driving around his, his with his baby in the back and um, it starts crying every time the car is quiet? Here's a little clip.
0: Silent,
1: so that ad to me was was a little bit of a um a hint has a hint of nostalgia because i have so many memories of being a child and falling asleep in the car
3: and like long trips Wow, I can't say I relate to that, but, um, yeah, I've seen that happen to a lot of kids. You never get tired in the car when you're driving? No, I just want to be alert all the time and see how the
1: driver is driving. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, you are very good, and this study... um, (laughs) <laughs> that I have for you it clearly does not affect you as much as other people, perhaps. But I get it. When I'm when I'm a passenger, I definitely not off, and it's great for kids and it's great for an adult sitting in the back. But of course, in driver's time, this is a really big problem it lowers your concentration and reaction and some research says it's quite a significant factor in accidents you might know that some cars have already um especially on you know higher level mercedes etc have some some vibrations that can go off that can try to keep you awake in case you fall asleep so it is a big issue but here's something else if you've had your nap and your coffee and you know you've done everything that you need to do, it turns out that your car may be making you sleepy on top of everything else. So it turns out that the natural vibrations of your car may be making
3: drivers tired after just a quarter of an hour. Wow. I've heard that before L nine the usual advice is 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 good. Uh, Yeah, I mean, it is a
1: thing of like, don't drive tired, right? But if you you are being made tired by your car, it's a very different thing. So just how much these physical vibrations of your car are affecting your body hasn't been very well understood. But the growing evidence seems to be that it is making people more tired. So the researchers that I mentioned earlier put 15 healthy and awake people in a virtual space simulator that vibrates at low frequencies the way your or my car would on a highway and they also tested when there were different or no vibrations so just after 15 minutes at the driving frequency these um, these people that they were testing were showing signs of drowsiness and then after half an hour there was a significant impact on how alert and concentrated someone was and after a full hour it got really hectic. That's
3: really scary Elna. So What's supposed what are we supposed to? what's supposed to happen with this knowledge?
1: Yeah, because it is it is worrying, um, but we also can't never drive. We can't just drive for fourteen minutes, right? So the study also seemed to show that possibly, different frequencies may actually do the opposite and keep people awake. So the team, this research team is hoping that there will be more findings that can help car manufacturers build cars in a safer way at different vibrations. And that would hopefully make it possible for us to not have these kind of um Reactions to um, to these vibrations, because if you think about it, there's nothing you can do about this. If your car is vibrating at a specific frequency, for all of us, it doesn't matter how much caffeine you have, you're still going to get tired. So I personally got a little bit of a shock by this, but I hope that over time car manufacturers can take it into account and hopefully this research can help not only mitigate this problem but actually make us more awake. How cool would that be? That was just a little bit about what's happening in the general world of science but we get closer to home and more specific after the break.
0: Stay curious. Stay informed. Stay on the Science Inside.
1: Hello and welcome to the show. My name is indeed Elna Schutz and we're looking at some science inside the news at the moment and of course there is so much sports happening at the moment if you are a big sports fan or even if you're not, if you're just watching the FIFA World Cup, maybe you're watching Wimbledon, maybe you're watching both of it on two different screens. You were one of those people that has to have, like, soccer on the one phone, and then, you know, tennis on the other. It's okay, you are welcome here, because we are going to look at it from a little bit of a scientific lens, through the lens of how sports and nutrition and our bodies interact with each other. We saw this recently with Serena Williams, specifically around her pregnancy and breastfeeding And how that affected her body And ultimately her sportsmanship So we thought to ourselves Let's, let's get into this Not just for the people Who are high level High performance sportsmen and women but But you and me who try to make it around the block without fainting, you and me who try to eat enough, you know, oranges and healthy things. What does this mean? We are speaking to Arista Ninaba and she is a lecturer at the Northwest University Pottestrom campus. She is a retired athlete but also a registered dietitian with special interests in sports nutrition. And she uses therapeutic nutrition to specifically address critical care, immunonutrition and nutrition in infectious diseases such as TB in relation to sports nutrition. Which I think is really interesting because, of course, not just people who are 100% healthy and have no chronic illnesses are doing sports. All kinds of people are. So, Arista, thank you so much for joining us on The Science Inside. Hello. So, let's kick it off. What kind of diet are sportsmen and women supposed to be on? Because there's so much to consider here. General health, muscle mass, their weight, and of course their performance. Yes, yes, that's true.
4: Um, That is actually a very difficult question to answer. Because the sports diet is highly individualized, so it will really depend on the goals of the athlete, do they want to lose weight, do they want to maintain the weight, build muscle mass, improve performance. So, um, and mean, it will also depend on the type of exercise or sport um, that the athlete is for in, and then as you say, also their health conditions. So, it is not really a blueprint diet that I can give, um, but... Um, I can give some basic, some basic principles sure. on um, what to do, and actually it's quite easy because um, we should always rely on a healthy, balanced diet. And for this, we have also always have our South African food-based dietary guidelines as a baseline that we can use. And then just the principles of healthy eating, such as eating at least three balanced meals per day and healthy snacks and then having breakfast every morning, consuming sufficient protein, sufficient milk and milk products, fresh fruits and vegetables. And this is also to protect your immunity. And then with regards to sport specific nutrition, the guide should be adjusted around the time, duration, and intensity of exercise sessions. And this is for example, to consume sufficient carbohydrates before you go into an exercise session. And then also not forgetting about recovery because we lots of times forget that we should recover following a training session and before our thoughts. So for this, carbs, carbohydrates and proteins are really important. And research has shown that flavored um, milk is actually a very good recovery option to have. Mm-hmm. And this is very important within the circle of an hour to an hour of the uh, training session. And then uh, it's also important to monitor your fluid at intake because hydrating status also affects performance. So, in summary, there are a few basic principles that I can use, that um, you should rather consult a registered dietitian to tailor the meal plan specifically to your needs if you are looking at nutrition and sports.
1: Hmm. And of course, it depends on uh, the kind of exercise you're doing, as you mentioned, so somebody doing tennis is going to be different than a weight, uh, you know, a bodybuilder or a weightlifter, but um, can you tell me a bit of how different a typical diet is for somebody like me, who's really just trying to make it around the block, as opposed to Serena Williams, who's training many, many hours, high intensity?
4: Yeah, well, that's a very big difference. Um, for, uh, just for a recreational um, athlete or someone that's like you that's just going to the gym or um, jogging, it will be a more a normal diet, like a normal, healthy, balanced diet and not really increasing the energy impact per se. But for uh, elite athletes, we will have to increase their energy and protein impact quite a lot depending on the type of sport that they do, and they will also incorporate sport-specific nutrition, like what do you um, in, consume during a training session and after and before, while for a recreational athlete, as I say, you can actually just follow out healthy balanced diet, and that should also be fine hmm. um, to reach your requirements.
1: So you're saying that even if I eat five portions of Norwegian salmon a day, it's not going to make me look like Serena Williams? But
4: no, unfortunately not. No, I am sad
1: oh, no. to, to to hear that. But let's get into um, something so interesting that you focus on, immunonutrition, um, looking specifically at how nutrition relates to people with chronic um, illnesses or diseases. Specifically, you've looked at tuberculosis, at TB. Um, how would your work help a sportsman or woman to heal quicker while taking their medication in order to get them Ready for a major sporting event, or just in general, handle both their illness and their sporting um, activities?
4: Um, I think my focus, my research focus was more on not really sport specific or sports athletes that have um, these conditions. Um, it's more focused on infectious diseases um, as such, and then also um, using immunonutrition in critical critical illness but immunonutrition in sport is also an emerging field so there's lots of ongoing research on that but it's still a bit inconclusive. I think the main thing is um, again for them to follow a healthy um, diet and then there's also specific immunonutrients like your um, omega-3 fatty acids that you find in salmon (laughs) if you consume it that may also play a specific role in immunity and then also the um, timing of your um, intake of certain foods around training sessions that will also boost immunity. So yeah, but that is really individualised and as I say it's still an emerging field with lots of research around it. So I can't really give you, yeah
3: they
1: set on that right now <laughs> Alright and um, we spoke earlier about Serena Williams and um, some of the stories that have been making headlines around her specifically with her pregnancy which I find quite interesting how she was making decisions about um, about her, her uh, breastfeeding and nutrition, um, she was vegan all these kinds, kinds of things how that related to her sports, um, her, her sports activities. What would your advice be around the kind of training and eating plan um, that one would have to do around a pregnancy, whether you are Serena Williams or just the mom down the street?
4: Um, I think um, with regards to that it's uh, important to start before pregnancy so to achieve a healthy eating patterns and a healthy body weight and a good exercise program before you go into the pregnancy because um, your weight prior to pregnancy and your outside to pregnancy will also determine how much weight you can gain during pregnancy and then also it's difficult to change your dietary habits and exercise patterns once you fall pregnant so um i think that's really important um there are different ranges of weight gain which is healthy for an underweight a normal weight and an overweight individual and appropriate weight gain during pregnancy will help reduce those pregnancy complications and also limit that weight extension after pregnancy. So it's really important um, that prior to conception. So um, in order to limit the excessive weight gain during pregnancy that some women find and then that will also impact um, athletes or sports people when they're pregnant, yeah, it's important to um, consider more nutrient-dense and less energy-dense food. So nutrient-dense means it contains lots of nutrients, including your proteins, carbohydrates, and healthy fats, and also vitamins and minerals that we sometimes forget about. But it doesn't contain that much energy um, in the food. An example of such food would be like your whole grain and cereals, um, legumes, legume, your so green and leafy vegetables, fresh fruits and vegetables, low fat milk and milk products, and then lean meat, like fish, poultry, and then eggs. And then um, focus on a variety. And then we want to avoid your energy dense foods, which, which will cause that excessive weight gain. And those are those nice foods, that, like those that are high in fat, that you could take away, your so deep-fried foods, and also those that are high in sugar like the sugar, sweetened beverages and also chocolates and sweets and things like that. And then with regards to exercise um, during pregnancy, you know there are various um, benefits to that. But generally, the idea is to continue with the type of, of exercise that you are used to prior to um, pregnancy. So if you're an inactive individual and you want to start exercising during pregnancy, you should rather ask your doctor first and then um, we want to focus on low-impact activities and then make sure that you um you don't overuse so avoid the use and then stay well hydrated while you exercise
1: hmm. just lastly Esther, I know that we've been talking throughout our conversation very much about um, foods and nutrition in terms of what is on your plate, but for a lot of people, nutrition and supplements also come um, come in the form of some pills, maybe some powders. Um, we all know that one guy in the gym who just wants to be, you know, more muscles than anything else. What role do, uh, do supplements play? in terms of um, strength, sports performance and just your general health.
4: Um, yeah, so that's a bit of a sticky subject I think and I also think that that should be again individualized according to the specific um, person and what they want. Um, but they're all different, various different kind of supplements and they have different purposes, and should be prescribed in different stores. Um but it should be kept in mind that using supplements always comes with a risk. As supplements are not well controlled in South Africa, so the supplements that we can buy in the shops that are avi- available is not necessarily tested. So you are not always sure if that supplement actually safe. So does it not contain any toxic substances? And then um, is it legal? Does it not contain any in- ingredients that are not on the label? And then lastly, does it actually work for what we wanted to do? And does it have the ingredients in that amount um, in the actual product that is listed on the label? Because as I, as I was saying, only taking what is in our supplements in South Africa, so you can be taking something that you have no control over what you are, are consuming. So I think um, using supplements or individualised choice, and it should be governed by a uh, professional like a doctor or dietitian. But in saying that, there is definitely a place for supplementation in sports nutrition, and there are various studies that have shown that supplements work. But they should be used with the correct training program and then also under the correct conditions, at the correct dietitian. And then as I say, it's got, you can't eliminate the risks that goes with supplementation.
1: Mm. Well, one uh, strong thread coming through that conversation there is definitely there are As always, no big shortcuts when it comes to sports or nutrition. Either you're doing it in the healthy way or you're just probably not going to get there. um, Whether you're trying to just be your own healthy self or be the next Serena Williams. Thank you so much. We've been speaking to Arista Nina. She is a lecturer at um, Northwest University. Thanks so much for joining us on The Science Inside. Thank you. So just after the break, we will jump to our next topic. And this one is especially for you guys. I know you left-handed folk out there, we never talk about you enough. You might feel forgotten there in the corner with your left-handed scissor that you had to buy at some strange shop none of us know the location of. Today, we put you in the spotlight up next.
0: This is The Science Inside with Elna.
1: Hello and welcome to Unscience, the five minutes in the middle of the show where it's all about research and um, often we look at stories here, some research that seems a little bit strange, you think why are they looking at this, why are they focusing on this, but it usually ends up in a place where We really get something from it. So let's get into it. Um, Today's Unscience was produced by myself and comes from Cornell University via Science Daily. Music is by Ben Sounds. I'm here, as always, with my producer, Bridget LePere. It's Unscience time.
4: Unusual. Unlikely. Unscience.
1: Bridget, I happen to know that you and I are both right-handed. We are in the vast majority of people, um, but of course there are some left-handed people out there. It's about 10 to 15% of the world's population, and they deserve to be spoken about also, don't you think? Of course.
0: We have a right-hander's world, and there are a lot of things that you may not think about that are actually designed for uh, right-handed people.
1: Yeah, so it is true the world isn't exactly made for left-handed people, from scissors to things like, look down right now, look at your jeans, look at the zipper of your jeans. Do you realize if you were left-handed, that would be the wrong way around for you? That's awkward. (laughs) I've never noticed this up to today. Have you noticed this, Bridget? No. (laughs) So I feel like the Science Society today is an ode to the people who... Yeah, who just, their jeans don't open as easily <laughs> as mine do. I am so sorry for you guys. Um, but it is going to get serious, actually. So we do, of course, think of this mostly only when it comes to writing something and then everything gets smudged with your hand. Or maybe someone, you know, who kicks a ball with their left foot and confuses the other soccer team by doing that But there's actually been quite a lot of different kinds of research into left-handedness and how it connects with other things. So one study, for instance, found a link between left-handed people and having a narrow jaw or face, which doesn't seem like a lot, but that happens to be an indicator um, whether you're more susceptible to tuberculosis. So what? Just because they're left-handed? Yep. Yeah, so there's a lot of really interesting research around this. Some of it just seems bizarre, um, what links there are to left-handedness, but some of them are quite serious. And... um It's very good. And scientists are looking at this kind of thing and and taking it seriously, especially in the research study that I want to tell you about, which is relatively recent. It's particularly about how our brains process emotions. So for about the last 40 years, the vast majority of research has shown that the two sides or hemispheres of our brain work on certain emotions.
4: Are you happy? Are
1: you sad? so uh, basically there are two sides of your brain and certain things get processed in certain areas so disgust and fear for instance on on the right and pride and anger on the left just as an example but here's the problem what if all those studies were done on exclusively or almost entirely right-handed people because that's what has been done, of course, being the majority right-handed, you know, population. So Daniel Casasanto is an associate professor of human development and psychology at Cornell University, and he decided to do some research to see if this coincidental bias in in the studies um, may
3: be worth correcting. And it turned out to be a pretty big yes. Wait a minute. So are you saying left-handed people's brains process emotions differently from us? They don't process them differently, but they happen
1: in a different part of the brain. Yeah. So it's not just a different part of the brain, it's the opposite way. So they base this all, let me explain it, they base it all on what they call the sword and shield theory. So imagine an old school sword, sword fight.
4: I challenge you to a
0: duel. <laughs>
1: Most people would hold the sword in their right hand to attack and the shield in their left to protect. So these hand movements have been found to link either to approach or avoidance emotions. So fight or flight, basically. And they get processed in the other side of the brain to the hand, so sword in your right hand, but your left brain, and um, the, and obviously the opposite for the shield. So Casasanto used pain-free electrical currents on healthy participants to stimulate the two hemispheres of the brain, and um, found that this happened just the same in left-handed people, just opposite to the right-handed people and people without definite handedness were processing these emotions somewhere in between
3: wow this is is an interesting and fascinating piece of research and i'm happy that there's some equality in science when it comes to all those left-handed people who may be like my mother, be feeling left out? But it is—is is it just uh, random, strange research? Is it just unscience for like a funny conversation? Yeah, Doesn't have a purpose. Well,
1: actually, there's very, very serious meaning um, to be taken away here, which I find very interesting. So, what Casasanto was doing in stimulating the brain and that process he was going through is actually very similar to something called neural therapy, which gets used on certain forms of anxiety and depression so there the simulation of the left side of the brain is meant to help encourage those approach or sword emotions where they're lacking but now the problem is what about left-handed people so basically what is happening is that these therapies are happening to left-handed people but it's based on the wrong science so, they haven't yet studied patients that weren't healthy, but this is a pretty clear red flag that the current treatment could be doing more harm than good for some people. How scary is that, Brit? That's quite scary. So I'm very glad, as weird as this research sounds, I don't know how he thought of looking at this. I'm very glad that they did find it because they, uh, that means that they can hopefully advise doctors using this type of therapy to at least stop for now and then um, on left-handed people and then hopefully develop some things around that. So it sounds quite strange at first glance, but this is one piece of unlikely and unusual research research. That I'm very happy somebody is doing that's our unscience for today if you love this story and want to tell us what do you think about it especially if you're left-handed go find us on social media right now VFM, um, on Twitter and on Facebook and the reason I'd love you to also do that is because up next we are talking about a surprisingly controversial subject your multivitamins do you believe that they are making you healthy Or do you think that they're just making your pee really expensive? We talk to um, a nutrition expert up next, but there's a Twitter poll online that you can go and vote on. Stay listening to The Science Inside.
4: Unusual. Unlikely. Unscience.
0: You're listening to The Science Inside, bringing you science around major news events.
1: This is the part of the show where we like to come to some conclusions. We like to look at something that's a normal part of our lives and ask some questions. How does it work? Is it real? What is the science behind this? And today, (laughs) I've got to say this morning, like most mornings, before I leave the house, I swallow a whole handful of pills. I counted them. There were seven this morning. There's magnesium, vitamin C, vitamin B, and multivitamins. All of them have been okayed or prescribed to me by a doctor, not because I'm sick, but because... I could be healthier, I am told. Supplements and vitamins are heralded as the solution of a lot of small and big health issues. From tiredness to period pain, just pop this vitamin or that one. And of course, they are very important in our bodies. But is popping these pills really helping us? Have you ever thought about that? Are we just making very expensive urine as some people have said Or are we even hurting our bodies? So there's been a Twitter poll um, online today. Thank you for everybody who voted asking you whether you take multivitamins, whether you think they're healthy. And I'm a little bit shocked (laughs) by the results because 50% of you said, nope, that's overkill. We don't need that. And then a third said, I do take them, but I'm skeptical about it. And only 17% of you tweeps said that multivitamins are absolutely healthy and you take them every day. I am surprised. So it, well, I'm very excited to welcome a registered dietitian, van Lingen, um, who is the spokesperson for ADSA, the Association for Dietetics in South Africa. It's nice to welcome you to the show. We've got some big questions to, to get through. Hi. <laughs> so let's just start with the basics, so we're all on the same on the same page. Of course, each okay. each vitamin is different um, to the yeah. other ones. But what exactly do vitamins do in our bodies? How are they absorbed? What do they do there?
2: Okay. So um, first of all, thanks for having me on the show. Um, yeah. So basically, vitamins help us to maintain good health. Um, there are essential nutrients that we need in small amounts as they perform different um, processes at a cellular level and um, our bodies can't make vitamins um, just by itself so we do need to get it from either the food or then supplement form and um, for the Um, or we do get two different kinds of um, vitamins. So the first group is your fat-soluble vitamins. That's the vitamin A, D, E, and K. And these ones can actually be absorbed and stored in the fat cells in the body um, compared to your water-soluble vitamins, which is basically your B vitamins and C vitamins. And then these ones can't be be stored, so they do need to be consumed regularly.
1: Okay. So... So they are quite important. Um, when should we really be taking vitamins in a supplement form as opposed to a food form? And if you've ever walked into a Clex or Discam, you know there are thousands of them. When is it really necessary and how do we decide? Yes, yeah, so
2: first so by always... Um I recommend to my clients that we do need to get our diets sorted out first because the most important thing is that supplementation can't replace a bad diet. It doesn't help following an unhealthy lifestyle, eating takeaways, and then try and um, just take supplements to make up for that. So first of all, I Fish, um, we just try and get them to eat a healthy, balanced diet that contain a variety of nutrients and colors as well. So these include different fruits, vegetables, whole grains, your dairy products, um, meat products, legumes, as well as nuts and seeds, and um, but we also know that due to all the processing most of our food products do go through, Not we don't necessarily get all the nutrients that we need or that we got uh, compared to years ago, um, or our bodies can't necessarily always absorb it due to um, health conditions. So the good uh, or good place to start when you do suspect any deficiency or so is maybe just to um, talk to someone like a healthcare practitioner or dietitian and have your diet assessed, and then make sure um, that you're first consuming something that you actually do need and just not take anything that you um, might not need. And then also when you do buy multivitamins or so, you want to get it like from a trust where the company that is um, a leader in the market or so and not just something that costs three rand for two thousand tablets just to make sure that it, at least it does contain the actual amount it says on the, on the can as well as that your body can actually use and absorb those Right,
1: so let's get into um, what I already alluded to earlier that even though I personally am a big supporter of vit- vitamins and many people, many doctors and dietitians are I was very shocked by some of the research around this and that there hasn't been as much correlation as one might might want there to be. So one specific example is a recent systematic review study in the Journal of American College of uh, Cardiology. And they found that there wasn't strong evidence for vitamins like folic acid preventing heart disease. There was no effect of multivitamins on the health of the people they tested and even an increased risk in some cases, like with antioxidant mixtures, which I'm very shocked by. How do you react to these kinds of studies?
2: Yeah, so I think uh, one of the biggest mistakes people actually make is they just consume consume a lot of supplements without even knowing like why they are consuming it Um, or even like are they consuming the right dosages or something and then always like you saying you're consuming seven different kinds of multivitamins um, but you don't always know each one's function or do you actually need all of that and I think that's one of the biggest mistakes that people make. So they're either overdose or underdose or the combination that they use isn't necessarily right Um, so I normally also recommend that before taking any vitamin you need to talk to a healthcare provider make sure that there is actually a need for that supplement and then also make sure that they are aware of any chronic conditions or current supplements that you might be taking because if you do take different combinations of it or say for instance herbal supplements or so with within your multivitamins and so there can be interactions um, but then also with chronic conditions it can also have an effect so you just want to make sure before it's starting to take any supplements that there has been research done on that and also that you really need it that there is a identified deficiency for that specific
1: nutrient. Hmm. So let's let's try to get to a final verdict of some kind if we can. As I mentioned on our Twitter poll, half over half of people were either skeptical or completely against multivitamins saying you're throwing your money down the toilet, it's not necessary. Where do you stand on it especially for people um, like many of our listeners who might be young and mostly
2: healthy do we really need them? Yeah so again I'd definitely say to start first with your diet make sure that you get in a variety of nutrients through the diet and that the diet is balanced and then before starting to take any vitamins do research on it but by research, I don't mean just like Google, do I need to take vitamin C or look at advertisements <laughs> or just go to a shop and talk to the salespeople because most of those people are there to promote their products. So the most important thing is to talk to a healthcare provider that knows um, or even going to see a dietitian. that can actually assess your diet and make sure that you... Do you have a deficiency or might be, or diet might be lacking in certain nutrients? And then, um, when starting um, any supplement, I'd maybe say just start off with a a good multivitamin so that it covers a broader spectrum compared to taking um, magnesium and calcium and a vitamin C and then everything else together with the multivitamin. So a multivitamin is normally a good base to start off with if, if you do decide or then also depending on if there's certain life periods that you go through, say for instance pregnancy or um, winter or you need to heal from an operation or something and you might need specific wounds or then even like sports people that do need that little bit extra and can't necessarily make the meet their needs through the diet alone so just start there Um, or then also make sure that actual blood test has confirmed that there is a deficiency and um, your current diet isn't meeting that then rather stick to those nutrients specifically instead of just taking one of each just because
1: Hmm. Okay, I'll have to relook at my handful of pills, and I'm sure a lot of listeners have either maybe started noticing things and thinking, hmm, maybe I should start something, maybe I should go see somebody about multivitamins and vitamins in general, or maybe you're taking too many. <laughs> Thank you so much for speaking to us um, on the show. Okay, my pleasure. Thank you. We were talking multivitamins, getting to the bottom of that Stick with us on The Science Inside.
0: This is The Science Inside with Elna.
1: Lots of good stuff on the show today, especially um, quite close to home, I think, when it comes to nutrition, um, sports exercising, all those things. And then lastly, multivitamins, should we be taking them or not? I have with me Anthony Teixeira who will be doing the Sports Hub just after this. What do you think, Anthony? Are you a pro multivitamin person or anti? Because I feel like there are two camps on the science
0: side. Um, I'm not going to lie. I'm having to choke my laugh because you like fitness and sports <laughs> and diet and then you bring the fat man on to talk. Like, come on, Elna. What's going on it's, here? It's
1: it's radio. <laughs> it's radio yeah
0: for me no. nobody knows well they know cuz i refer to myself as the fat man <laughs> quite often <laughs> so for me though i feel like multivitamins do play a good role i'm um, especially more as a pick me up than a daily thing in my opinion right um that's just my opinion but you heard from the new the nutritionist you know do what you got to do yeah
1: yeah i get that i mean i have i have um some of the pills i take are are very much linked to real life things when I stop taking them it doesn't go well for me so I get that but I also understand that I might be throwing away like hundreds of (laughs) rounds for no good reason (laughs) which is terrible so tell us what's up on the sports hub today
0: well of course we are going to wrap up the quarterfinals of the FIFA World Cup did you happen to catch any of the games no because Germany's gone home
1: (laughs) maybe maybe that is correct
0: (laughs) yes because we're also going to throw forward to the semi-finals Belgium again against France what's an absolute banger and then England Croatia nobody really cares about that one though but we're going to talk about that we're also going to discuss you know the French Open because right now it's all about tennis as well let's not forget that there's other sports going on and Super Rugby will wrap up this weekend It's group fixtures so we're going to throw forward to that and all the possible implications of what's going to happen there
1: exciting exciting stuff we are leaving you in great hands for the Sports Hub team but from the Science Inside a big thank you to all of our guests featured on the show today, including Arista Ninaba and um, Esti van Lingen, giving us some good, just good advice there. Today, our team behind the scenes, as always, is production by Bridget Depey and take by de Sahame. The podcast, if you missed it, wits.journalism.coza forward slash science. And it's on iTunes, as always, on social media. It's Wow FM. Just make sure you use that hashtag Science Inside to find us. My name is Alna Schutz. The Science Inside is produced by the WITS Radio Academy, funded in part by the South African Department of Science and Technology. As always, I will be back with you next week.
0: The Science Inside, Monday from 6 to 7 p.m. on FM 88.1.
4: The Science Inside Podcast.